we touched al- along a bunch of topics. One mm-hmm. of them had to do with um, the question of whether or not selfish people yeah, is it cooperate. S- yes, selfish people and cooperation and what is it to be selfish, especially for people, because we're not inherently just self-motivated 100%. We do cooperate. We have pro-social behavior, but it still seems like at the end of the day we are in some capacity motivated for our own self-interest. So, Well, we're definitely motivated for self-interest some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think the first priority is to struggle for your survival. But in the modern society, uh, struggling for your survival is more of becoming well aligned with the system that is your society. Absolutely. And being, and those pro social behaviors, especially as, you know, uh, these populations get bigger and more, and we're depending on people more and more for things that we need, right? You know, I depend on the people at the grocery store. The people at the grocery store depend on the distributors. The distributors depend on the farmers. The farmers depend, you know, it's a big, long cycle. And I have to not only work with those people, but trust that everyone is going to do their job right. And what's interesting, I think, is the fact that no matter where you are, no matter what level of technology you're at, humans are very committed to trying to figure out the wrongs and rights of people, Right. Right. That's the thing. I mean, I, I know, I remember they brought this up in anthropology when I took it both times, physical and cultural. You know, people are very well, people are, no matter who you are, it seems like people in general are good at handling social, uh, problems, right? Being able to. Well, I don't know, actually. I don't know if they're good at handling social problems, but they, they definitely come up with, methods of dealing yeah. with them i think like in an iterative sense they're better than the last generation but usually over time they improve but i don't know if no, they're good i think you're absolutely right and actually let me correct myself the i i <laughs> i don't think it's necessarily that we're great at it like you know we're gonna always come up with really good decisions i think we make really bad decisions when we're trying to determine how to resolve a social problem but i think what i what i meant to say is that we're we're more um it's more natural to do it so for instance i think and i think this was brought up uh, again in my class sorry i wish i had something a little more original to give you but no, it's i'm going to use this as my evidence Steal maybe from your class put a put a <laughs> citation in there quote my professor um he said, if you, if you give a person, mo- most of the time, and I, again, this is sort of hearsay, I can't prove this on any account of my own, just from what he said, but he said, if you give a person two problems, essentially, and one of them is like, you give them a bunch of cards, and there's symbols on the cards, and you give them a set of rules and say things like, if there's a red star, put it in this category, but if there's a red star and a yellow dot, put it in this category, right? So they're just sorting cards. Okay. And you present them with another problem that's a social problem, and you say, okay, there's an express line at the grocery store, Yeah. and someone gets in that line, but they don't have like 20 items. They have more, like 21 items. Yeah. You know, is that person doing the wrong thing? It seems like people are the, the people gravitate more towards solving those social problems, even if they're not. You know, everyone's going to have different opinions. Someone's going to say something like twenty-one items. That's really not that bad. Maybe that person's having you know a tough day and they really just need to get that extra item. And whereas someone else may say, no, it has to be twenty items. That's too many, right? Yeah. Everyone's going to have different opinions, and that's why maybe we're not great at solving them in like, a, you know, we don't have the best decisions. We don't always make the best decisions about it, but we're naturally inclined to solve those kinds of decisions because think, it's yeah. beneficial to us. Yeah, I think I see, I see what you're saying. Is, that, um, maybe, sir, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. That, that problems dealing with um, concepts like fairness and equality seem to be ingrained in our psyche. Exactly. In a way that abstract problems dealing with categorizing shapes and colors perhaps are not as well ingrained. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the, I also have taken an anthropology I know. Class. Yeah, you probably know this as well. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been observed in primates. And this isn't new news or anything. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember watching one video uh, in my class where I think they had some kind of some kind of primate. I don't know. Let's let's say it was a chimp, mm-hmm. and uh, they fed the chimp something, and then or they they gave the chimp a rock, and he's supposed to do something with the rock, and he gets a reward. And then 
chimp right next to him with a window in between them so they could see each other. Same thing. But then they went back to the first chimp and gave the chimp a greater reward. Yeah. I think the first one was a pea and the second one was a grape. And the grapes are highly coveted in the chimp society or whatever, <laughs> whatever primate it happened to be. And then the second primate would not accept the lower reward after they observe, you know, their colleague or whatever, yeah. getting a higher reward. So some sense of fairness was was automatic in the same way that you're saying I've, um, these these kind of social calculations are more automatic to us yeah. than, than the abstract. Exactly. And, and no, and I know the exact story you're talking about, I'm sure. Um, yeah, we've all been watching the same chimp yeah, videos, right? right? It's what all is, the same thing, What right? is community college without some good chimp videos? <laughs> And uh, and maybe a trip to the zoo. Did you have to do that? The trip no, to the zoo. No, well, there's a zoo. There's like a zoo in San Jose, right? There is, but um, if you're looking for primates, go to so San Francisco. I think they actually have gorillas now, but Oakland has gorillas and other stuff. Um, San Francisco Zoo, which is the one I went to, they have uh, siamangs. That's what I studied, and um, prosimians, all the lemurs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know, there's a number of primates you can see at those zoos, but. Uh, no, but you're right, and that's the thing. I always thought it was funny because the way it was described to us is you have, you know, the the chimps. They do the same thing, but one of them gets like an extra grape or something. The other one sees it, and he just says, "No, I'm not going to play your stupid game anymore," and he just yeah. refuses. Yeah, throws the rock everywhere, throws yeah. a tantrum. He's he's not immediately. Yeah, it's it's clear that they can figure out. No, that's not fair. Right, and it's probably the same with us, right? And I think that's that is important to note, especially when we look at. Um, God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I forgot why I brought this up. I forgot well, the point okay, I let was me, making uh, from the very beginning. You bring us, okay, us back so, on topic. So let me, let me throw this in. Yeah. All right. um, one thing that you touched upon that I think is, is a really important um, thing to discuss, and uh, given everything else we talked about, is the fact that decision-making will always be a part of our reality. Yes. But society is becoming more complex. So it's, it's more difficult. And we touch, uh, and this was the, uh, something else we talked about a few minutes ago, but there are more ways to kind of categorize yourself in an in-out group on accident now than there have ever been. Yeah. Because we're making so many more of these kind of passive decisions. There's a lot of criteria that you have to, Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I mean, you're, 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 like you said, a, a decision could be passive for you, but to someone else, puts you into an in-out group, such as the purchasing of Reeboks. Yeah. Right. Somebody else could be very passionate about um, sweatshop labor or some horrific thing that's attached to the Reebok company, and see you advertising these Reeboks because you're just wearing them. Yeah, because you have them. And think that's somebody who's against my cause. That's someone who's promoting something that I find disgusting. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that is an other. But it's not just for Reebok shoes. This is for every aspect of our lives. I mean, um, you go back far enough, and obviously there's the uh, in the United States, there's the example of skin color. But what about these kind of cultural items that we're constantly consuming in a way where we're not inspecting every single detail, but someone else maybe would consider them significant details, right? Uh, like perhaps, perhaps if a rich person uh, like buys another Porsche or buys another mansion, Within their circle, it's not a significant change in their behavior. But for someone who's hungry, seeing every single purchase and then translating that into how much food, you know, could be given out on the streets or something of that nature mm -hmm. could, you know, kind of uh, cause their blood to boil, yeah. <laughs> let's say, in a way that the person who's spending in this way isn't even aware of. Right. Yeah, and that's actually, and that's a good point. I think that's another. This is kind of one of the things about, uh, I think, philanthropy as well. If you have someone that is very, very wealthy and they donate something like a million dollars, that's a lot of money. Right. In a material sense, that's a shit ton. Right. But to them, it's not. It's 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 smaller to them in a way because they let's say they have a billion dollars or a trillion, right. whoever. It's a smaller percentage. Yeah, it's a smaller percentage. Whereas you know, let's say you have someone on the street and they have a hamburger. Some guy comes up to them and they say, "Dude, I'm I'm really hungry. I'm starving. Do you have anything?" And for whatever reason, just hypothetically, person X, this homeless person will you know split their hamburger in half and give it to them. You know, compared to a million dollars, that's nothing. Right. But in terms of what that means. To the person, 
that's yeah. that's immense, right? That's right. huge. So, and this, I think that that is important for understanding why people may not things like you know why is it that you can look at something like you know someone's donated five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, etc., and people have a lot of different opinions about that, despite it being materially, it's it's worth some amount in a material sense, but yeah. you know, in in a sort of human sense, it's really worth some a very different amount to every single person that sees it for exactly. that exact reason. Yeah, and and um, I think a, a kind of potent example of this has to do with uh, sopas soups. Right? Yeah, that's a good so point. So I remember, yeah. I remember when I first went into F Pod, I didn't have any soups. I didn't want any soups. I don't really think. Every once in a while, I got hungry, but I just ate whatever food they gave me. Right. Um, but I noticed that there's these distinctions had developed amongst the inmates who had spent longer time there, and they really, really did not like chicken soups right i didn't understand what was going on i thought black people love chicken right but even the even the brothers were against the chicken soups and they had this ongoing thing i mean to them it was a completely different thing than it was to me to me this is a meal when i'm hungry right when for whatever reason this other food was not satisfying but to them it was mainly seen as a currency right one or two as a group meal i.e. the spreads, yeah, right? So how does this chicken soup come into all this? Well, as an individual, I don't really care what the soup is if I'm hungry, right? I'll eat it without any flavor. But when you're spreading as a group, the group's decision of what flavorings they care about is actually what you have to prioritize, one. And two, since it's gambled, it turns out the f- that the frequency of the chicken soup had something to do with its value as well. So maybe it was uh, it was really easy to buy chicken soups if you got them in the packages. Yeah. But uh, the other flavors maybe were a little bit more scarce. Yeah. So because of that constraint, that changed the value of the soup. Now, why do I bring this up? I think that connects with the Reeboks. I think that for every single decision that we have, you don't really know how other people value it, what kind of schema they've come up with in order to value it, how they're using it, mm-hmm. but that affects you eventually. You have to kind of conform to it, even if you don't understand it, right. because it's sort of the world you live in. Right. You either obey it or you you kind of fail in a way. Which is why I think um, the, the, the conversation about humans really is just a conversation. I, I, I think people do what they can within constraints, but... This is going to be a weird argument, but the constraints are making the decisions more than the people. Meaning this, let's say you have a hundred choices and then I reduce that to two choices and you pick one of the two choices. It might not be hard to, for you to, you know, accept the idea that I really made the choice for you. Yeah. Right. Because I reduced it to a higher degree than you did. Mm -hmm. Now you still made one choice, right? I didn't choose, I didn't reduce it from a hundred to one, Yeah, but I still did something, right? And that's different from reducing it from a hundred to 99. Well, there's all the possibilities that exist for human survival. Mm -hmm. Meaning what are the basics? We have to have uh, nutrition and we have to be safe. And if we keep doing that, our bodies are going to run for roughly a hundred years. If you miss the nutrition part, going to be less than that if you miss the safety part it's going to be less than that um but basically those are the those are the constraints Mm -hmm. now if you're living in some forest versus living in a mountain versus living somewhere else those two factors are altered right yeah but those constraints really are going to determine your decisions more than i think you actually making the decision i think it changes the set of possible decisions yeah and you know that's a good point it doesn't matter what level of society you live in technologically or socially Right. Probably at the very, at the very base, right? Foraging societies and maybe even lower than that. I don't know what is lower than that, but, um, or before that rather, not lower. Make it clear, not lower, but before that, right? I know. (laughs) Just wanna, just wanna make, back myself up. Um, you're still gonna have those choices made for you, even if not a person is making them. I'm thinking like you have this infinite set of choices, but your ecology, the, the world you live in, in terms of just environment, that's making a lot of decisions for you, right? Right. Like I, writing the, uh, I may get the reference wrong, but like being a dungeon master. <laughs> hey, okay, like all right. Dungeons someone has to decide right. the game, right? It's That's actually a really good point. And here's an interesting point about that, just speaking from experience. When me and my friends are determining what game to play, it really is 
all of us sort of confining the decisions of others. And sometimes we're confined. It's funny that you bring that up because sometimes the players confine the GM, right? Or mm-hmm. the DM, I suppose, if it's Dungeons and Dragons. But the point is, you know, let's say my friend Maria really wants to play um, like Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Everyone's like, okay, cool. But yeah. she's making a setting. And she's saying, okay, there's going to be airships and, you know, this and that and gunpowder and who knows, right? She's made this beautiful, intricate world. But, you know, for whatever reason, I really don't like airships. Yeah. Who knows? It's just something about me. But I say, nope, I don't want to play a game that has airships in it. Now, she's put a lot of work and love and dedication into this thing. But ultimately, being a game master, she wants people to play because she wants someone to understand and enjoy what she's made. She's not making it just for her. She wants to participate with other people. So in a way, I'm confining her decisions. I'm saying, you have to make the world for me, right? Maybe I don't like fantasy, right? Then she, all of a sudden, she has to say, okay, I guess we're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. What else can we do, right? Right, right. And it's interesting because what I think that means is as a game master, she confines my decisions, but as a player, I also confine hers. Right. And there's that dynamic where it's not simply one person. Sometimes both sides of that equation are confining each other and it's that, and working back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, there's that final compromise that we reach right. or agree to, right? And that itself is an iterative process. Exactly. Yes. It's. I mean, the feedback is is what what you know ultimately refines it to a game that someone wants to design and a, a game that someone also wants to play. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the right framework for thinking about decisions. It's not. It's not about whether people are good or bad. I think. I think it's more of what they can't. First of all, what they out of the things that they need to do. Right. What are all of the possible ways of achieving them, right? That, that, first of all, period. And then second, it's that they're aware of. Yeah. Right? And then another layer is that it, it, that serves their wants as well. Yeah. Right? And then there's that most optimi- optimally serves their wants. And that could be a dynamic thing. So maybe it changes, right? Yeah. There could be a lot of different ways, for instance, of fulfilling your nutritional requirements. Yeah. But what... That's what you need, right? You need to have a certain amount of food per week, month, whatever. But what you want, maybe you like spicy flavors, okay? But then what spicy flavors are available to you? And in that sense, there's an iterative process. But ultimately, this out, out of all the possibilities, the biggest constraint is, is one, what you absolutely need, mm-hmm. um, or the biggest constraints are what you need, and what options do you have to achieve what you need? And that we haven't even got to the decisions yet. That's the, that's the framework for saying now out of those, what decisions can you make? Yeah. And I think um, from that perspective, it's a very, you know, I don't want to say noble, but it's a, it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing to be in a society that you can design because you can create options yeah. that I, didn't exist before. Man, that's interesting. Making decisions about decisions. Yeah. Essentially setting up, making choices that will affect the decision-making process of other people. Right. Man. And of yourself, hopefully. And that's what optimizing your life, that's the iterative process I think we're running is, I want to live this way. I can't. How do I get closer to that? Yeah. You know? And um, a lot of what we see is the result of people going through that process. Yeah. Like I like podcasts, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think that in summary, I think that one of the things that has changed for me since I, I mean, I originally started getting interested in math in like 2012, but uh, before that I was mostly a speech and debate guy and I had some interest in philosophy. And one of the things that's changed is thinking about things more in like a probabilistic framework than in a humanistic framework which I think to many is a dry thing, but I think it's, it's beautiful and it can be very enlightening. Such as, you know, the simple example of like, their decision making is not straightforward. You're working in a context that can be described kind of briefly mm-hmm. in abstractions that have nothing to do with people. You know, like you're pulling marbles out of a whatever. Yeah. Right? But they're deep and powerful such that you can have a better understanding of people. And now I don't know if this is true. I'm just saying this, this appears to me to be a good approach for handling that conversation of mm-hmm. 
how are people really? Are we selfish? Are we altruistic? Yeah. What do we really like? And I think if you start from, from things that we already know about decision making and we already know about, you know, the constraints of our environment that, uh, I don't, again, I don't know if it's right, but it seems like a more fruitful path because it's just a lot more clear to me. But to somebody else, they're probably screaming at the top of their lungs Man. in frustration. <laughs> I, it's, it's crazy you bring that up. That makes me think about, and I, I hate to segue sort of, sort of hard-headedly into, um, like, really, I suppose, just like, uh, really philosophy, right? And just sort of, as it is, you know, heavy duty, not, not heavy duty, but sort of, uh, philosophical questions. So, sort of in a, in a dumb way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm human. I'm susceptible to believing what I want to believe and I'm right. And yeah, yeah. No, I, everyone else is wrong but me. But, um, it's funny you bring up having that sort of probabilistic worldview because I, personally, uh, there's all, there's, uh, I suppose a question of, you ever heard of the question of free will? Yeah. And things like that. So I'm very much a determinist and I'm a, I'm as hard of a determinist as you can get. I'm a physical determinist. <laughs> so, so do you mean, uh, no randomness? So, Yes and no. So because what if it's like deterministic pseudo randomness? Yeah, and the, I it, suspect mutation is deterministic <laughs> pseudo randomness. By the way, it's so. And this is genetic the, mutation. The and this and this is kind of the interesting thing. So you know, you bring up you bring up probability and a lot of especially hard determinists, physical determinists, people that say there is you know no randomness, everything follows <laughs> cause and effect down the down the line, right? It's it. <laughs> very hard for those people to sound serious and sound even, you know, slightly rational because you can bring up things and say, look, if we look at things like genetic data, we really can't find any sort of defined correlation between something and then this perfect one output, right? right. We know the components. We know what can happen, and we know that, you know, when we have this assembly of things that can happen, the thing that does happen is almost always one of those things, yeah. which is great. Right. But the, for the physical determinist that says everything is cause and effect, what sucks is, you know, essentially the argument I'm always trying to make, and I don't make it well, is um, there's components to the world that we don't understand that will ultimately affect the cause and effect of things. Sorry. Yeah. Cause and effect of things. So it's hard. It's hard to make that argument. However, philosophers who are smarter and better and fantastic and attractive um, have come up with this, uh, this good sort of, you, you said kind of a mutation hybrid. Um, it's called the statistical, statistical determinism, where they say, and this is the thing, this is how it's, it's different from physical determinism. They don't say, like I'm trying to say, where everything is cause and effect, you know, everything leads to something else. There's, you know, you take a snapshot of the universe, you can figure everything backwards and everything forwards from it. Instead, they say everything follows essentially this statistical model of chances that goes up and down. And what's interesting about it is as certain things happen, that the percentage of this, you know, essentially effect happening, this potential thing happening, goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up until it reaches 99.999 forever, which is 100%, right? Or practically yeah, yeah. 100%. So... It's still determinism, which is super cool, but it's not trying to make this dumb argument of everything is, you know, rigid and cause and effect. It's saying there, there is some randomness, but the randomness follows these models that we've made. And using these models, we can increase the odds of knowing what is going to happen or not happen, which will ultimately help us make a better, give us a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, that's, that is very, um, attractive to me. I don't know anything about it, but from what I hear, it's, that seems like that's the closest, uh, that I've heard and yeah, that I can and, comprehend, and right? The, to reality. Yeah. But, but here, just to be clear on that, what you're saying is, it sounds like even if we're 50% sure, we're, we're 100% sure that we're 50% sure. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's probabilistically deterministic. That's, and that's actually a really good question. I'd actually never in my life thought about that. The fact that we do we ever know a hundred percent. Okay, that we, let's let's take it a step back from that because I okay. think we could definitely agree on this. 
we're 100% sure that the probability is between 25% and 75%. Okay, sure. So now right. you have the error bars. Yeah. And now you actually can be sure, even though it's probability. Yeah. But the reason why I, I, I think that that is a form of, I, like I said, that is very attractive to me. That's mm-hmm. probably what I think, actually. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's far off from the, and I'm not saying this should be a constraint on philosophy. <laughs> But it's far from the intuitive sense of the word determinism. Yeah. Because what it's saying is this. Kim Jong-il or whoever, Un, has a, uh, you know, he has access to a nuclear code. Mm-hmm. And if he presses the button, then we're 100% sure that there's a 50% chance yeah. that the nuke launches, you know. Well, which really is different from the intuitive sense of determinism, which is that his pressing it is you know, directly linked to the yes. nuke. Really, it's linked to a probability of the nuke. Yeah. But it's linked to a probability that we can know and that we can model. This, I'm trying to think of a word. It's not combinatorics or, co- I don't know, combinatronics. I, I don't know how to say that Mechatronics. word. Mechatronics. <laughs> um, it's, uh, so, so looking at probabilities and statistics, um, What's interesting is these things kind of compound, and it's kind of funny, isn't it, right? If we, so let's say, just here's what we know. The button was pressed, right? Yeah. So boom, button's pressed. So there is like, so in a, in a way we want to say, I like the guy screaming, shout out to the guy screaming. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> um, we know that when that button is pressed, let's say, yeah, I know. We, uh, we have this 100% chance that this nuke is going to fly and do something, right? But maybe there's some error with the nuke. So there's, you know, maybe a 90% chance it's going to launch and 10% chance that it's going to fizzle out or something's going to go wrong. And if it does launch in that 90%, then there's another 50% chance it's going to land right on its target and a 50% chance it's going to land a little far away from its target. And if it lands directly on its target, yeah. there's a, yeah, and these odds keep boom, 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 boom. I agree. Boom, boom, yeah. Boom. That's, I think that's the correct way of viewing yeah, things. Yeah. And what's interesting is I think this is kind of cool. What I think we would find if we were to put it like that is if you started to add up all of those probabilities, they would get increasingly closer to zero or 100. If you started adding them. If you started adding them all together. And, and just infinitely, 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 infinitely. Or alternatively, because I don't know what I'm talking about ever in my life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think it would be... Um, I, I know in... Uh, what is it in mathematics? If you have a summation of a number that is increasingly small, it does approach a finite number. Convergence. Convergence, exactly. A convergent series. So... Perhaps what I should be saying instead, I think maybe it's a little uh, hair-brained, hard-headed to say, oh, you know, it'll eventually hit zero or a hundred percent. Again, I'm a physical determinist, so I really want that to be true. God, if that were true, <laughs> I would have a party. I'd invite all my friends. We would dance. Um, but I think maybe what it may be is as these odds get further and further out, maybe they get smaller and smaller in how much they affect the overall end result. So maybe it does converge on a single percentage. But what's cool about that is we can say it does converge on a percentage. So there's still this sort of statistical determinism, and we come back to this, right? Which I well, think is kind th- of I think, fun. I think this is what you mean. Let's say we were just talking about the landing spot of, yeah. of the nuke, uh-huh. right? So it's launched, and it's planned to land here, but there's, there's really a probability ring. And within the first ring, you could say, I don't know, we're 80% sure it'll land within the first ring. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. It'd be smaller the closer it is. So like, okay, 15% sure it'll be within this several inch radius. Yeah. And then you make it larger and you say, okay, we're pretty sure it'll land here. And then you make it larger and say, okay, yeah. it's. And by the time you say, you know, the radius is, you know. The Earth. Some, some fraction of the Earth's <laughs> yeah. radius. Then you could say, yeah, we're definitely sure that given all the rest of this, that it's already launched, this is a trajectory, whatever, that it will land within this radius, yeah. then, then I see what you mean, yeah. You have a, it, the probability of whether or not that thing is going to happen depends on how close it is to the, the intended target. Yeah. So it's like error bars. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I mean, but I, I didn't really understand what you meant when you said we're adding these, we're dividing these or something. I... I <laughs> I don't want to try but, to but if, it, if it was that if it was anything close to that then yes we're, on the, we're, we're you know at least roughly on the same page I'm gonna 
I'm gonna stick with what you said because number one, you worded it better, and I'm gonna pretend like I'm like I, I'm I'm I uh, I have a good enough head where I could work that out in my head, and I wasn't just talking out of my ass like I always do. Um, yeah, but I see what you mean. Uh, the further, yeah. So. Wish I had a like pen and paper in front. I want to scribble stuff down. I want to work it out on paper before I try and make I another point. I feel well, like isn't that up. isn't that a cool thing that drawings can clarify something in your head? Yeah, like a picture. Yeah, and a diagram, right? A how diagram. a diagram how can is that? how how much of an effect it can make? A boring ass chart really, <laughs> you know, can rip your mind in half if it contains information that you find valuable. Yeah. Uh, because like here's the thing, like I said, I had a background in speech and debate, and I always loved verbal communication. I think that it's cool and there's a lot of emotion that you can portray in your voice, you know? <laughs> so, um but at the same time, it wasn't until like physics, some things in calculus are like this. Like I remember the 3D rotation of the integral or whatever to make whatever, right? 360, I mean. Um, there's certain things that are very visual in calculus, but um, it wasn't until physics courses that I really started to appreciate like the power of diagramming in making really, really difficult things <laughs> more, 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 okay. uh, more, uh, more simplistic, you know? Like, yeah. uh, the last thing I remember studying in a physics course was space time. And the way that they described, uh, time dilation and length contraction is some beautiful diagram with two mirrors. They say, okay, you see these two mirrors? Okay, so this, right? Yeah. Okay, now this, right? Yeah. Notice this. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That would have to mean this and this. Yeah, bitch. That's our universe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? The, these very uh, elegant diagrams um, were kind of like the birth of uh, Chef of X Comics. I don't know if I've told you about this, but uh, I used to do these uh, concept diagrams. And um, I don't know. It's, I, I think it's just something – I think it's just something that I sit back and, like, appreciate. Like, Wow. We are, to give another anthropology reference, we are multimodal, you know, communicators. We communicate not just through one channel of information, like visual or audio, but it's the combination of all of them. And that's how we can live in such dense societies, yeah. right? Expressing ourselves is a really important part of who we are, just as, just as important as our ability to calculate. Yeah. In fact, I would argue it is a calculation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I sympathize with your frustration, basically, and <laughs> not being able to, to say what you have to say in words. But then saying, you know, if I had a, a pen, a you pen know, and paper, maybe a I pen could and draw paper. it out. I could show paper. you. I could yeah. show you what I mean. And you, know, and you know what's sad? I really, part of why I wish I had a pen and paper is not just to try and prove to you, like, say, like, look, now I've drawn it out. See, it makes sense now. And maybe you'd be like, oh, yeah, that does. But the other thing is, one thing I kind of like about drawing things out is sometimes you can draw something out and look at it and say, oh, wait a second. I draw this out. This doesn't make any sense at all. And then at least you know you're wrong. Right. And I think that's kind of cool is you know why you're wrong, too. When it's just sort of this, you know, and this is maybe, maybe not. I suppose math is very simple, but, you uh, know, <laughs> it's not. But <laughs> let me clarify, it's not. But, um, you know, when you kind of draw things out and make it visual, like you said, and spatial, I think, it's very easy to work out where the error is, mm. right? Yeah. And I think, and I, I actually can can say from philosophy my favorite philosophy course ever that i took and i like them all was has got to be intro to logic i know you had a bad experience with a logic yeah. course which i feel so bad about because i love i loved my course i wish you were in my course um but one thing i loved about it is when you made something like not a truth table but when you put out you know when you went boom 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 down the line with every premise and every statement and, you know, you had to work out what that conclusion was based on this and that and modus tollens and modus ponens and who, who you know, who cares. Um, you really got to see where the error was and that helps. So that's why I love philosophy. That's why I want to do that is because philosophy may not necessarily give me, you know, a job. 
I can't go right into programming with a philosophy degree. I can't go right into anything necessarily with a, with a philosophy degree. But what I love about philosophy is it's teaching me not just how to ask questions, but how to build arguments and ideas that are real, that, that work, right? Because it's teaching me not just how to be right, but how to be wrong. <laughs> again and again and again, I gotta say it, right? I, I am, I am wrong. And making sure that I'm okay with being wrong is important. But the great thing is if I know I can be wrong and I look for why I'm wrong, it makes things better. And then I can learn something like programming. And yeah, I can be yeah. a better programmer because I know how to say, oh, that's what's wrong in the code. Now I know how to do it right and fix it and I become infinitely better. I think yeah. everyone has the capacity to do this. I think everyone does this anyway, right? You do this, some guy on the street does this, some guy halfway across the world does this. Everyone does this. It's a human thing. But philosophy teaches us to refine it. Yeah. Refine that skill to such an extent where, you know, you could, you can really make kick-ass arguments or learn kick-ass skills because you know how to do the process of learning and, and, and making ideas and making decisions. Right. You know, um, philosophy, perhaps philosophy should be considered a STEM discipline. You know what's funny? So, I'm so, can I, can I kind of shoot off on a tangent here? Yeah, Is that yeah, okay? Please, Is it, please okay. Do. So, I'm sure you know of the branches of science. Um, and I, I don't know it very well, but essentially, and there's actually an XKCD comic that's very funny that does this kind of, kind of well, but, um, to, to kind of summarize, you know, you have a sociology guy and then a psychologist says, oh, you know, sociology is just applied psychology. I've seen this comic. Yeah, exactly. And it just goes back and back, right? It's kind of, this is the branches of science, how everything is kind of a more complex version of some greater version of science. Or um, more fundamental version. Or, yeah, more fun, exactly. A more fundamental version. So, and then, you know, you have biology works up to chemistry and then that works up to physics. And if you look at it, that actually does work up to what we consider math, even though, you know, I mean, it really, what is physics and what is all sort of science, physical sciences, what are they but, you know, taking math and taking empirical data and applying math to that? Right. right. That's, that's science practically. And whenever I try and describe philosophy to my friends, it's all, I'm always saying, listen, philosophy is not science, but they do something similar. Right. Mm. Because, but here's the thing, even before mathematics, so a more fundamental version of mathematics, I think as hard, as high as you can go is ratiocination and logic, right? right. Being able to say, number one, two things are different. And then being able to say, this is different from this in this way. Right. Some relation. That being able to make those relations and identify that things are different, that's the basis of all logic, all math, all anything. Right. So the way I see it, philosophy is when you take and here's the thing, I you could you could bounce back and forth, but it's either ratiocination and it goes down to mathematics, but it also has an offshoot into philosophy, or you have mathematics and that goes down into physics, which is the empirical version. And then philosophy, which is non-empirical. It's like non-empirical science, right? Asking a question of what is knowledge. Now, a scientist may be able to say this is what it, this is what it is to think. This is the physical effects of thinking. This is how our brains work. That's cool, right? But a question like what is knowledge? What is, what is, what is it to be real? Yeah. Right? I mean, what is it? Um, I've been doing a little bit of reading on Aristotle's metaphysics, and I, again, I know nothing, but um, with Aristotelian metaphysics, he says that philosophy, I think, is identifying the causes and principles of things, right? So okay. even if we don't have empirical evidence for these things, we still want to ask these questions, and that's what philosophy does. Hmm. Even if I can't measure it, even if I can't see it, even if there's no way for me to understand it, I'm going to ask a question about it. And asking a question about that thing that I cannot measure, that is philosophy. I think we should have uh, more fields of applied philosophy. I would be interested. To, I think philosophy can be applied, and I think that would be cool. I just, I feel, I feel like it's sad, but science actually does a lot of that anyway. I feel like in some cases, scientists, I mean, scientists, I think, are philosophers, Right. But they're philosophers that work with data, right? Philosophers look at things that they've measured and then make and then ask questions and do that whole process, right? Um, 
Maybe so, what I'm thinking of are uh, sociologists, but more with respect to <clears throat> the systems that exist in our society and asking questions about those. Yeah. So that, that's probably a social science that, that I'm thinking of. <laughs> it's it's funny. I hate to I hate to bag on philosophy, but it's so it's fun and it's easy, so I love it. But to bag on philosophy a little bit, after I took anthropology, I started questioning. I started saying to myself, "Why the hell does value theory still exist?" Hmm. Value theory. So, I mean, what is it? The three main branches of modern philosophy are metaphysics, what is real, epistemology, what is knowledge, and value theory, which is separated into what I know as ethics and aesthetics. So, what is it to be good or bad? What should or should we shouldn't we do? And what is beauty? Right? Ethics and aesthetics. But I feel like I took anthropology, and I started saying, "Why do we still have ethics?" You know, when I took, I was thinking, why do we have a lot of things that we have after anthropology? Yeah, it seems like a better form of history. It seems like a better form of sociology. Yeah, it seems like the only real way of figuring out a lot of the shit that people genuinely are interested in is by looking at like the real history. Yeah, it's almost as if it makes regular history seem like you're talking about what happened at the club last night. <laughs> you know, like it really is not the correct scale for yeah. deep questions. Yeah. And you and actually you are right, right? That's the thing. People will say I mean, and I'm listen, I'm not bagging on historians. I think Yeah, by the way, yeah, history, history is very important. History is extremely important and good on you guys for really understanding what's happened in the past, but you're right, right? The approach. People, people will say things like 500 years ago, you know, this this thing happened and they'll say this is a good model for understanding what's happening now, but an anthropologist will say 5000, 5, 5 million yeah, 5 million years ago, we developed in such a way where we seem you know, we seem like we do this a lot, and there's evidence that supports that. Yeah, that that seems like well, that seems way better, right? Way better. So, way some better. guy 500 years ago, a group of people. Yeah, okay, all right, I get it, I see. But you know, an anthropologist can make the point five million years ago, or five hundred thousand years ago, or fifty thousand years ago, or five thousand years ago, or five years ago, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter when they make the point because they're still talking about humans. And on top of that, I mean, I guess we were talking mostly about cult, I mean, physical anthropology, but cultural anthropology covers everything else. All the cultural yep. richness that you care about in history, it seems, right, from obviously someone who's not an anthropologist. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like it's, it's just a much more rich way of understanding certain things about human beings. Yeah. That's not, you know, I mean, we've seen a lot of this bullshit, but it's not like, okay, here's this culture and we're going to just study that. It's actually the opposite. It's saying, hey, look, this is something that we did in the past. We focused on only one culture and it turned to shit. Yeah. So let's, let's, uh, let's be aware of that, like from the jump. And it's, it almost cuts the legs out <laughs> from a lot of things that may appear. Cause I always knew, I mean, I was a young, you know, uh, skeptic, right? Uh-huh. I always felt something was fishy about history. <laughs> but when you really think about what just a basic anthropology class can teach you, it's so much more uh, intense. It's so much more fruitful than than just hearing, like I said, what happened at the club last yeah. Cause And I think because it, it gets personal too, right? It gets personal in a meaningful way, though. Yeah. It gets personal. It gets personal in a in a way that actually tells you something about the human condition. Yeah. Hey, humans. Uh, hey, isn't it crazy that humans do this thing? By the way, you're a human too, and you're yeah. like, oh shit, I do that thing. Yeah. Oh god, they know. They know about me. <laughs> they figured me out. <laughs> they got yeah. me on the road on the ropes. But also, you can improve. Once you're aware of it, yeah. you can you can resist tendencies that are not in your best interest, and and also there's you know there there there's like fiction. I, I I'm a personal fan of art too, uh, and there's fiction that'll tell you really deep things about the human condition. But I'm just saying if you're going to take a factual approach, anthropology over history yeah. is my current. You know, maybe this will change in the future. But, uh. <laughs> maybe maybe a historian will give you some profound thing that'll change your mind about it. And and here's the thing: I'm hoping that someday, maybe an efficient, because actually I was I've been thinking about this. Maybe I shouldn't be so hard into it. I think there really can be some benefit to saying there are things we should or shouldn't do. I think a lot. And what is it? I think political philosophy 
does come very heavily from ethics. What should we do? What should leaders do? What should a populace do? But I think on a deeper level, what should they do given their options? Exactly. And that's, I think, where anthropology comes in. Anthropology will tell us, for the most part, if you're in this environment, right, you have this kind of amount of people, and this is kind of what you're looking at, these are probably the decisions you're going to have. Okay, go at it, right? Now you can kind of figure it out. Now we can start asking those questions. And also, in in the framework that assumes that you don't have like infinite options right another thing is you have to value science because you you have to value an empirical exploration of what is possible yeah you can't discount the fact that you're not you're not aware of everything that's possible right now you're not you know i mean 50 years ago um, it wouldn't have been possible to do many things that I take for granted right now. Yeah. Right. But but it it was possible then. They just didn't have the technology to do it. I'm. Go ahead. So anyhow, I, I think I think uh, the exploration is also something that's kind of embedded in that yeah. model, which is that you since you don't know everything that's possible, and since the more well, <laughs> I don't want to go too deep, but the more ethical decision involves you choosing out of some finite number of options yeah. that you perhaps could expand, Yeah, you have to value the explorers. You yeah. have to value people, um, whether it's ideas or, you know, physical space, right? Yeah. You have to value people who say, hey, we could do this another way, right? This is an option. Listen, this is how we know it's an option, right? <clears throat> Universal healthcare. <laughs> so, uh... So yeah, and 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 you can't really have a, I don't know, a, a society that's worth fucking <laughs> existing in, without valuing that, without saying we should constantly figure out whether there are are um, better options, better options yeah. for us to especially achieve common goals like health and safety and um, nutrition. Etc. Really, really, our needs, right? That's the yeah, thing: is needs. health, safety, nutrition. These are things we need to survive. And then beyond that, I would be pretty open to more of a free market economy approach, if it's things that you don't need, right? But the problem with it is, if it involves things that you need, then you, why, you know, why are you competing for things that you need if you don't have to? Yeah. We both kind of look and check the time. <laughs> what are we at? Um, Is this serviceable material? Do you have any uh, burning desires? Any burning desires? Does anyone <laughs> in the group have a burning desire to share? Um, by the way, I was asked to, um, what's it called? Chair at an AA meeting. Oh. And I thought of you. Um <laughs> And I realized if I'm going to come here anyway, it wouldn't be that much of a burden. But I ended up turning it down or not signing up rather simply because I don't know if I'm consistently going to show up. Yeah. And two, apparently I don't get to choose like which meeting. Oh. uh, Yeah. They they call you and tell you, all right. So they didn't give you like a date and say, hey, I didn't even start the process. Man. What they said was we need chairs. And you <laughs> and sign up. And then some girl came up to me and said, yeah, you should sign up. I chair a meeting, which means you should chair a meeting. <laughs> That's not true, but all right. It's I was, not great. It's funny. Reasoning. I, uh, they, the, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm the secretary. My, my co-secretary called. Oh, I'm sorry. Her. Secretary, not chair. Yeah, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I almost oh, secretary. Oh, you meant they tried to railroad you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I know that might have been confusing. About. So it's 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 funny. Um, uh, so I I was secretary on the twenty fourth, and then I was secretary on the thirty first because and and I think it was funny because you know I mean obviously no one really showed up on Christmas Eve because they're with <laughs> their families, right? Makes sense, except for two people and then the really hardcore guy who like goes to a meeting every day and he will bring in the book. And he's, you know, I think nice guy, but very intense, very, okay. very intense. But what was funny is it was just me and this other guy. And I, I don't know why this was in really bad. This was in really poor form, both socially and especially at AA. They don't like doing this, but I, I kind of got off track explaining to him, not really my life story, but why I was there as a secretary. And I had to explain to him, I had to say, listen, man, just so you know, I'm not an alcoholic. 
I'm not. That's the thing. It was, and he and he How had this. Well, I mean, that's the thing. And this has happened before. I've had to explain this to other people because they've asked me why I'm there, and I, I don't want to lie to them. I mean, I don't. I don't go up to people and say I'm not an alcoholic. But when people ask me what I'm all about, I do admit. I say, yeah, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm here because the court, not even the court, but my program required me to go. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. And they said, sorry, it's just a thing. There, because I had to get the, essentially it was a requirement I didn't need, but I had to do anyway, right? Right. But that's the thing. I found a lot of value. I, I, I always like to call AA. Now, granted, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but I always like to call AA, um, not necessarily like spiritual education, but wisdom, right? I feel there is things I can get out of it. So I go. And that's why I'm a secretary. That's why I show up. That's why I do it. Even if I'm not there because I don't need to drink. Listen, I don't need to drink. I, I mean, it's like, do you struggle? Do you struggle? Do you want to drink every day? No. <laughs> did I want? Did you want to drink before? No, not really. Now, I think I, I, you know, I think I do have. I may be really sort of. I'm not sure addicted. Addicted may be a strong word, but I'm certainly compelled to do other things, right? That are that may be bad for my health in uh, a variety of ways. But it's electronics, right? Mm. And it's so hard. It's so hard to run away. From electronics in this day and age, you're living in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's tough, and and uh, this is the thing. Again, I, I, one of the reasons why I think I could get away with it is a lot of number one, the people I spoke with were very cool and compassionate. They're like, oh, okay, and they may, have, and thinking about it now, they may have not believed me. You know, you go to an AA meeting, you're like, I'm not an alcoholic. And they're like, yeah, sure, okay. That's the funny thing about any of those <laughs> meetings is that if you are honestly not an addict, then they just think you're in denial. Yeah, they just think, no, it's, it's, he's just denying it. It's okay. We'll let him live out his fantasy. I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. But the thing is, I do identify with a lot of it. You know, they talk about escapism, and I identify really heavily with that right? I go into my games. I go into my movies, my stories, whatever I'm doing. I'm doing it because I want to run away. I don't want, I don't want some part of my life because of X, Y, and Z thing. So I go to this other world and I feel like a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, a million bucks. In a game, they tell me I am the most important person in that world. And I am because I'm the player, right? So understanding things like escapism, when they say, you know, you really can't run from this stuff, I identify with that. Because I want to do that, so I get a lot from AA meetings, and that's why I secretary. Because I want to be, I want to be responsible for something. I want to be of service to other people, even if it's not to AA, right? I want to feel like I'm making a contribution, and I want someone to hold me accountable because I think it makes me a better person. Mm. But with AA, I've, I, I've, I hate it. I go on, I go on these stupid, long running. You know, this listen to me talk for who knows how long, and I don't even remember what we were. I was what point I was trying to make, but yeah, no, it's 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 always funny seeing people uh, when you say, and that guy I think it happened to be that that guy on Christmas Eve, he actually did give me like a what kind of look, and he was he seemed a little perplexed because I think there was some believability when I started going into it and saying, you know, I identify with escapism, but my addiction is not substances necessarily. So I think he started to put it together like, oh, maybe this isn't denial. Maybe this is just some guy. Because, I mean, there, I, as far as I know, there aren't any electronics anonymous, right? I think, here's the thing, if we had a support group for people that went on their smartphones at 12 o'clock at night and didn't sleep because of it, every person in Silicon Valley would be at that meeting. We wouldn't have enough, <laughs> right? Electronics yeah. addiction doesn't exist here because it's everywhere. Everyone is online. Everyone is connected. Everyone is living out this fantasy of the online life or the computerized life, the digital life, the gaming life, the movie life. Virtual reality The life. virtual reality. I, I, I participate in a lot of virtual reality. I'm a cheap fuck, so I don't own it, but I have a friend <laughs> that does. And sure enough, me and him, I mean, and it is kind of scary, right? Because... <laughs> I, me is one thing, but this, uh, you know, my friend, now granted, I mean, this is it's kind of funny how it all comes together, but, you know, we have this little gun game that we play, but sure enough, we're learning how to accurately aim and reload weapons. Mm. And because it's VR, it's no longer just pressing buttons. You're learning the spatial dynamics of a weapon. To is the T. Is that a good thing? To the T, right? <laughs> Now, again, th with this specific friend, who I love to death, but I won't give a name to just for whatever reason, um, his family, they're, they're all competitive shooters. 
In real life? In real life. So they actually own a number of over-unders. And, you know, I've, I've gone shooting with them, and they're, they're very talented in, in target shooting, in trap shooting, and, you know, um, like clay pigeons, stuff like that. But I will tell you, if you play this VR game long enough, you, I mean, you'll, you'll understand everything about a weapon. You'll wow. understand, you know, I mean, and there's simple stuff like, what, well, where is the charging handle? What does the charging handle do? Right? What you, is it so to chamber are you, around? Are you now interested in purchasing a firearm? Uh, no, that's the whole question, right? Do I really want a gun now? But here's the interesting thing. I think my personal answer, I don't think this, I don't know if this applies to anyone else, but what's interesting is I would say despite learning so much from this VR thing, I actually don't have, I have less, I think, of a desire to own a weapon because I don't need one anymore. Mm. The VR world gave me one. I, the VR world gave me one that is legal to own. I can't hurt anyone with it, right? Right. I can't drop it and accidentally blow my foot off. I don't need a permit for it. I don't need to pay for it. Right. The virtual world, in a sad way, has taught me everything I need to know, but has also reduced my desire because it has given me an outlet. Now, I know that, you know, this has been an argument for why, why are movies and why are games not bad. Yeah. Because they're an outlet for people. But I think there is some, there is some truth to that. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to go to a shooting range anymore because I, there's one that's safe and I, it's, it's, it's completely separate from the real world. And what's important is it doesn't affect other people in a negative way. Right. 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 But, but, but again, we still have to ask these questions of if it's giving me the knowledge, what does that mean? And what does that imply? Right? What does it mean that someone who has no firearms experience can, now I'm not saying you can do this in the game I'm talking about, but assume the game I'm talking about is pretty complicated, right? What if we get to a point where you learn how to disassemble, maintain, and clean weapons? Yeah. What if you suddenly, what if a game can teach you very, I mean, very terrifying things like uh, practical applications of chemistry. I, this, is, this is why I got in trouble, right? Now, I know this because of real life, but it, God, if someone could give me a VR option and say, yes, this is how you process acids and energetic compounds, right? And you don't need a lab, you don't need anything. You can just do it in VR. I would be gaining all of that knowledge and practical knowledge, without actually having having to need of any of the stuff and it would give me an outlet but it would also be teaching me things that if i were dangerous might be bad right so to speak so let's say you're doing one of these uh vr games dealing with guns sure do you feel like you have control over your the amount of time that you play on these games or do you think that there's a mesmerizing aspect to them that's difficult for you to manage i'm gonna so this is a tough question to answer, and the reason I can't answer this personally is because I don't own the system. <laughs> they're they're expensive, so I have a friend that owns it. We hang out a lot. We play a lot together. So that's so he why. limits your activity. Yeah. It, well, yeah. This is the whole thing. I'm limited because it's not mine, right? Mm -hmm. Now, granted, this is actually interesting. I have been, you know, he has offered. You want to try out this or that or the other, and I do say no. That's you know, I don't want to do that. But the reason I say no is because I'm there to hang out with him, and I want to play a different game. I think games are mesmerizing. And I think games are actually more video games. Not even, I mean, I do a lot of traditional gaming, but video games specifically are mesmerizing. They, they are, they bring you back. And that is, that's not just in their design, but it appeals in such a way. Again, like I was saying, you get to be that hero. Oh my God, man. This is how you put thousands, I've put thousands of hours in games, right? This is how you put thousands of hours in. You go every day. Maybe it's for an hour, maybe it's for two hours, but then we come back to this idea of why would it be an addiction? It's because you need those two hours, right? Maybe it's not a lot, maybe it's 30 minutes, but you need those 30 minutes. You need to go back to your little world and be this other person, but you're not you. That's what I had a lot of trouble with, is separating me in the real world from this other me, this virtual me that doesn't actually exist, but thinking that virtual me is me. Well, what, what, is, what is the virtual you like? Different. <laughs> and here's the thing. Different, and this is why it's important. Different because the world that virtual me occupies works differently from this world. What, what are the differences to an outsider? Because I've never been too into video games, believe it or not. Yeah, so maybe... 
Here's, here's an interesting idea. This is, I'm not saying this is related to me in any capacity, but this is probably a, this, people have mentioned this in games for a long time, and this is a good point, right? In video games, especially video games where, you know, you have things like conflict and fighting people and this and that and the other, especially with these protagonists, because you're trying to occupy the role of the protagonist. Even though the protagonist is a character, you're them, right? You're doing their actions, you're trying to be them on some level. So, you know, any, any game with conflict, people fighting each other, whatever, you have these protagonists or these players that will barrel through and just kind of massacre nonstop. And there's no, there's no consideration. Okay. So you feel like you're less considerate of other people. Less considerate. And that's the thing. More in objective. The yeah. And I think I see this, and not just in video gaming, but in traditional gaming too, there's hyper objectivity. You have goals and you do those goals no matter the cost. No, no matter the cost, right? Now, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, Anna, it's a game, right? You're supposed to be, it's like a sport, right? You're not sitting there in soccer saying, you know, what does it mean to kick the ball? You're just kicking the ball. You got to get it in the goal. That's what you do. But the problem is in soccer, it's kicking a ball. It's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of separate. In a video game, it's emulating a world. And the actions that you're doing in the game, there's probably, they probably relate in some capacity to something that you could do in the real world too, right? Right. So, I mean, and this is the whole question, right? If you're, if you're like that in a game and you're objective and you're trying to carry out these actions, whatever they may be, right, does that mean that the same rules apply in real life? And the answer is like, no, right? But if you can't figure out the difference, then it becomes bad. And maybe a good example is this. Let's say you have a graffiti game, right? And yeah. the, there is, uh, I think, what is it? Mark Echoes Rising Up or something. There was a game about this, right? And I'm just going to use this as sort of an offhand example because I don't want anything as polarizing or crazy or political as people dying and guns and shooting. But just, it's a game where, you know, you ride around and the game is like, you know, you, you spray paint on walls, you tag walls, and that's the game, right? But now, on the surface, right, this is just a game where you go and you move from objective to objective and do the thing. And the thing is tagging, but the thing could be anything. The thing could be cooking steaks. The thing could be doing a backflip. Who cares? You're going from point to point, and you're doing an objective. So that's game logic, right? You get the thing done. You're being objective about it. But if your brain can't switch between the two, you might start thinking, yeah, okay, well, in the game, he could go around and he could just fucking tag everything like this and this and this and this. I'm going to do that. Does that happen? Because, well, well, I don't know. I haven't done research on that. You tell, you tell me. <laughs> it seems unlikely, but, I mean, I could see that the feeling would be lingering. Yeah, I think, and that's the thing. It's emotional, right? Yeah. I, there's, there's, you know, it, it's, I suppose in some cases it's rational. If it's teaching you things, it may be rational in some capacity. But it is an, it's, an, it's a feeling, right? The feeling of the game, the feeling of doing things in a game, and then the feeling transferring into the real world. And that's where that disconnect comes in. So how about this as a resolution? Doing hard things in the real world that are challenging, that are rewarding. Because then you, can't, you won't have this disconnect, and it's less likely you'll feel like a hero immediately. You can only feel like a hero if you actually achieve something. Well, yeah. I, I mean... Yes, the everyone deals with their stuff differently. And I've, uh, <laughs> I mean, you may have low key given an advertisement for doing sports. Well, <laughs> that's funny that I've done that because I football perhaps. I'm not. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not a sporty guy, but uh, I, I don't play sports. But uh, sure, I mean, if it helps people, right? Yeah. But I, I suppose maybe just less competitive gaming. Less com. I, like gaming that's of the spirit that we're all here to have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think games where it's so tough because I don't want to say, I don't want, I, I love immersive games, right? I love games that give you this big expansive world. I love games where you can talk to 500 people and they're all different and they all have backstories. Yeah. And you can go home and have sex with all of them, right? That's great. <laughs> I love that. But in the same way, I should probably be asking, you know, as a person, as a person that plays a lot of games, I should be asking, is this affecting me? Actually, I, I mean, it's funny when we, maybe not on the micro, well, I mean, I'm just sort of an anonymous person on the microphone, 
I, I have a lot to say about how games have, I feel in a way, positively affected me. But I, I, I feel because it's, su- because it's such a personal thing, and because, I mean, unlike a lot of other things that I like, I don't like to break it down logically. And because I'm vulnerable, because I'm a person, and I realize how, much, how important it was to me then and now, and how it helped me develop as a person... But the second someone starts making a good argument and saying, you know, maybe think about this, I immediately jump off because I feel like it's, it really is, it's a part of me, right? It's a fundamental aspect of my person. So to call that into question makes me feel like they're calling my, my status as a person into question because it's just that important. But everyone has, I think everyone has this in some capacity, just in different ways. For me, it's that thing specifically, but maybe that's something on the drive to wherever we go, but um, it's interesting. I'll say that. I understand that. And I respect it because if something is a habit, uh, then you find out that perhaps it's something that you want to reconsider. It doesn't mean that at that moment that you're immediately going to change your behavior. Yeah. You have to love yourself however you are, right? But still set goals. And that might not have anything to do with video games for you, but um, it's not th- this state of confusion is something that I, I, I think, um, you know, I, in the cases that I run into it, it's, it's not something I run away from. Yeah. It really is an odd thing to think, huh, I want to be different, but I'm not there yet. So how do I live with my current self? And, um, you know, there's extreme cases like drug addiction. I, I get, well, I can't claim that, but that exist out there yeah. right, where someone is trying to change their brain, basically. Um, then there's small cases like, uh, you know, um, maybe talking to someone who you, you like having the courage to do that or not having the courage to do that and living with yourself. Yeah. Um, but it's the same struggle. Uh, it's interesting hearing you speak about video games like this, though. I, I guess it's, <laughs> it's, I mostly speak to you about philosophy. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you, uh, peeking into this world of, uh, you know, another person <laughs> is, is, is nice. Because I never, like I said, I, I did play sports when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I, I mostly skateboarded and rode, like, fixie bikes. Um, I gave speeches. Yeah. And I, like... Didn't read enough books. <laughs> I, th- I actually, I think I did read a lot when I was in high school. But, uh, yeah, I never got into the video game thing. I think I, when I was younger, pretty much felt that this could be bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody's different, you know? And, uh, it is what it is. But on that note, it's about time for the most important question. Ah, the yes, most important All question right, give it to me. What in the universe. Bounce or bend? Ooh. Bounce or bend? Yes. Okay. Bounce or bend? I am going to say bounce because it has more letters. That's right. The chef of X podcast. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Mm, delicious. <laughs>